This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. <laughs> All right, everybody, I think uh, it's about that time to get rolling together tonight. Um, this is one of those lectures that um, just took me into places I didn't anticipate and has left me in places that I didn't anticipate. Um, I have left many rocks unturned, so I think there's a lot of opportunities for conversation at the end. Um, and as you may or may not know, the title of the lecture and the question that uh, I want to consider together tonight is, am I following Jesus on purpose or just riding my parents' coattails? Um, in spite of the fact that there's no PowerPoint, I do have a plan, so <laughs> be assured that there there is some structure to this. Um, but... This is also quite a storied lecture. Um, my desire to give a lecture on this topic, um, kind of exploring this question of growing up in the faith and staying in the faith, maybe, um, grew out of conversations that I had with Leah last term, um, we're from the same little teeny tiny town in Central California, up in the mountains. There's not even a stoplight in this town. Um, and we share um, some similar and um, familiar reference points when it comes to church culture. Um, and so my conversations with her stirred up quite a bit for me. And then some of you may remember Alexandru from Romania, who was here last term as well. And during one afternoon tea time, he asked me my testimony. I'm pretty sure he said testimony, though he may have just asked me my story. But um, we ended up having quite a long conversation, uh, swapping stories about how we became Christians and how we have remained Christians. And so those are the things that, that got me thinking about how to collect some thoughts on this topic. Um, and in one sense, this is simply a growing up question. How do I have an adult faith? It's a question of differentiation. How do I continue to grow into my own person uh, and continue to follow Jesus in ways that might look similar to my parents, but might look very different than my parents. Well, I 
grew up in a Christian culture, um, maybe similar to some of you, that prized testimonies. And they were, um, I once was lost, but now I'm found stories. And the more dramatic the conversion, the better. And indeed, my own father had such a story. He was the eldest of six kids in an abusive, alcoholic home. And by his late teens and early 20s, he was staged to just repeat that cycle. He managed his father's tire shop. uh, And one day, a van, this was like the late 70s, Jesus People movement in California, Um, A van pulled into the tire shop with this mural painted on the side of it that said, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the driver of the van, while my dad was doing the tire repair for him, invited him to a revival at, um, I think it was a Assemblies of God church nearby. And against all odds, my dad went. And... That night he got saved, saved from sin, saved from his earthly father being his only father figure, saved from alcohol. And over the years, the fruit of the authenticity of his conversion and his ongoing transformation was evident to me. In particular, my dad's determination to be a signpost, as he called it, that pointed to Jesus, evidenced to me his trust in a real God who was really there and planted in me the expectation that God would be there for me too in personal and unique ways. And my dad has often said, We were baby Christians together. We grew up in the faith together. But unlike my father, I don't have BC days, as he calls them. (laughs) My earliest memories are church memories. I remember the click-clacking sound of my patent leather Mary Janes on the tile going from the sanctuary to children's church. And I have this memory um, of sitting in the back seat of our Ford Tempo, gnawing on the vinyl of our car door, going home from church, uh, thinking really hard about how there could be Someone that didn't have a beginning or an end, like trying to get God. I was probably five around that time. Um, there's a whole lot between five and college, but by college, I was determined to, um, I remember using this phrase often, make my faith my own. And I have come to realize over a couple of decades now, that while I don't have a BC marker on my personal timeline, I do have a series of markers at 17 and at 20, and again at 23, 25, 27, 30, 
is there a pattern every three years? I didn't look. <laughs> uh, 33, 36, 39, there's a three-year pattern. <laughs> but, uh, significant um, years where there were um, times of decision in which I chose to follow Jesus and keep following Jesus. Um, and I want to invite you to consider your own story tonight. Um, whether or not it has a BC marker or there might be various markers on your personal timeline, um, I'd like you to consider tonight how um, those markers tell a story of your orientation toward or maybe your disorientation from Jesus. And my hope and my goal um, for this lecture is that we might all see a little more clearly what it has meant, what it might yet mean for each of us to follow Jesus on purpose. And in the end, ride his coattails and not our parents into life and more life. Um, the language of following, am I following Jesus, um, stands out to me in particular in John's Gospel. Um, in both chapter 1 and in chapter 21, the first and the last chapter of John, um, we read of Jesus telling disciples to follow him. In chapter 1, he tells Philip, follow me. In chapter 21, he tells Peter, you follow me when Peter's worried about, what about that guy over there? So that's, um, that's the language that, um, I think the image of that language, that we have somewhere to go and someone to follow. And following someone somewhere is not something that we can do once and still get to where we're going. We have to keep following them. I think that language is helpful for for us. So, um, this has proved indeed to be a difficult topic because it can go in so many directions and it brings up all sorts of questions about familial relationships, about parenting, about adulting, um, family systems questions, theological questions about the relationship between biological family and the family of God. Um, so I acknowledge all those are there. And it's become a difficult topic because uh, I'm, in the, I'm in the midst of this. I'm still, still a child of parents and I'm a parent um, to children. So I'll take a few minutes to outline... Uh, where I want to go, uh, borrowing some language from the visual arts um, to describe what I'm choosing to put in the foreground of this picture um, and also what I'm aware of in the background, sort of the landscape here that we're on. So in the foreground tonight, I want to think about uh, individual persons and a personal God. I am keenly aware that what it means to work through a Christian upbringing 
and remain a Christian is a personal question that requires personal answers. How does someone who has always known about Jesus come to know Jesus? The answer is there's a whole lot of ways. Um, In fact, there's as many ways as there are people. Um, And this reality is reflected in the Gospels. People come to follow Jesus in many, many different ways. Some because it's suggested to them by a trusted teacher they should go check Jesus out. For another, because Jesus gives him a whole new way of understanding himself. For one, simply because Jesus says, follow me. For one, because Jesus cuts through a whole lot of snark and shows him he knows him better than he knows himself. And uh, these four examples, all from 16 verses at the end of John 1. And the stories in this room will be as resonant and as diverse Some stories will involve working through childhood traumas that came in the context of the church. And some stories will involve attending to significant and deeply relevant questions about the Bible and Christian teaching that were never really taken seriously or just written off as too heady. Some stories will involve taking personal responsibility for actions that hurt others and wrestling through what forgiveness means and if it's really possible. All stories of following Jesus will wrestle with who Jesus is as revealed in the Gospels, and all stories of following Jesus will involve becoming more truly and fully human. One of my favorite Labrie aphorisms expresses this well. Hans Ruckmacher said, Jesus didn't come to make you a Christian. He came to make you human. Um, I have thought a lot, and I'll return to this at the end of the lecture. I found my mind circling around the last words of the Old Testament um, in Malachi, where there are words about the hearts of the fathers being turned toward children and the hearts of children being turned toward the fathers. Um, And I am left wondering um, how we might become more human um, as our hearts are turned toward one another across generations. We'll come back to that at the end. Um, So I've already foregrounded some of my own story, um, my dad's story, (laughs) uh, which is where I have often found myself beginning my story. I'd also like to foreground the fact um, that I alluded to already that I'm very much in process personally as I think about this question. I am in this sandwiched time of life. On one side, I have healthy but aging parents that I'm beginning to think about how to care well for as they do age. And I have small children on the other side whom I'm invested in intensively um, caring for them daily. 
And Joshua and I were both raised in Christian homes, and we ourselves are raising Jacob and Lily in a Christian home. I've reflected quite a bit on the gifts and the challenges of my own churched upbringing, and I'm going to continue doing so. Um, And I both take comfort from, and I also worry quite a lot (laughs) about raising my own children in the church and in the context of Christian ministry here at Labrie. Um, So, in the foreground, individual persons and a personal God, revealed most fully in the person of Jesus. And if personal God in the foreground, if you're sort of starting to imagine a, a picture here, Um, If that bit, a personal God, is just a big fuzzy blur, um, I invite you to read the Gospels again and again and let who Jesus is shape your understanding of what a personal God is like. And then in the background, on the landscape of this conversation, um, are two words that I think are um, kind of really prominent words right now, um, deconstruction and deconversion. We live in an age of deconstruction. Um, This term has its origins in the philosophical thought of Jacques Derrida, but it's now used to refer to the dismantling of anything constructed, even pumpkin pie or, you know, fancy chocolate torts or something at your favorite restaurant, deconstructed desserts. Um, but I'm thinking especially of the process of dismantling one's received or inherited beliefs. Deconstruction is the new norm. Nearly 60% of people raised in Christian ch- churches deconstruct their faith following high school, and indeed many of you are in that process in one way or another right now. So I will use this term, deconstruction, to refer generally to times of life and processes that we find ourselves in when we're pulling apart what we've received, we're taking it apart to figure out how or if it really works, or why it doesn't work why we, in the way that we think it should work. Um, and I want to also acknowledge the deconversionist trend in recent years. Um, high profile, or at least highly public, uh, thanks to social media, conscious uncoupling with the institution of Christianity um, or the faith of one's youth. I'm not going to address this head-on as a cultural phenomenon, but it's indeed in the background as we consider what it means to reckon and wrestle with the Christianity of one's upbringing. So, um, from here, the the um, way I want to proceed in reflecting on this topic is to um, refer to this book, which... I had mentioned as an as optional pre-lecture reading. I've never done that in a, in a lecture, so um, I don't expect that anyone has read this. Um, but I do recommend A.J. Svoboda's book, After Doubt, 
as a, a helpful resource if you're in the midst of dismantling the Christianity of your upbringing. Swoboda offers eight practices for following Jesus through deconstruction and doubt. Um, and to keep the personal foregrounded tonight, what I want to do is to, to juxtapose uh, two things that I have realized in hindsight were key factors for me in continuing to follow Jesus um, with uh, two each of Svoboda's practices. So um, one thing for me plus two from Svoboda and then another thing for me plus two from Swoboda. That'll be the outline for tonight. So, um, things that have helped me. One thing, um, reflecting on what was both caught and taught in my upbringing. This little phrase pertaining to parenting um, is one that Joshua and I have latched onto. I don't remember exactly where we first heard it from, but um, it, it expresses this um, idea, I think reality, that even more formative than what is explicitly taught to a child is what is caught. Um, by the child through the overall way of life of the home. So I think of this as something um, akin to the old adage, uh, do what I say, not what I do. But it puts parents on the hook a bit more. Um, it's not enough to say what is right or to say what you believe. Um, you need to show it. You need to live it. You need to embody it. I can preach grace all day long, but if I regularly flip out on Jacob and Lily when they break a glass or drop the full compost bucket on the living room rug, um, it's never happened, it's never happened, it's never happened, yeah. (laughs) They will catch the deeper imperative to not make mistakes rather than hear the taught lesson of there's grace, there's unmerited favor in the face of even the gravest mistakes. <laughs> when we experience a big gap between what we believe in our heads and how we actually live, uh, there's a decent chance we're experiencing Uh, Things that we were taught in conflict with things we caught. Taught or caught. So, you know, in an ideal world, there will be this life-giving consistency between what's taught and what's caught. But none of us grow up with perfect parents. None of us are perfect parents. And none of us interpret um, our parents or our memories perfectly. So (laughs) there's gaps. Um, What was taught in your home. What have you caught from your upbringing? And it's worth saying, like, uh, it, good and good and bad and <laughs> helpful and challenging can come on either side. Um, there might be a lot that 
wasn't ever said explicitly, but was lived really beautifully that you picked up. And that counts. (laughs) So one thing that I caught from my parents was a freedom to voice questions and express doubts or disagreements over matters of faith. Most Sundays after church, we came home and made brunch and sat around the table for a long, uh, a long meal and conversation. Especially as I got older, that was a favorite memory now. Not only was I free to voice my own questions and disagreements over what I heard in a sermon, but I remember my parents, too, um, expressing their frustrations or questions or dissonant thoughts and feelings about matters of biblical teaching and church life. Um, I remember my dad freely admitting if he didn't know something and saying, I'm learning right along with you. Your questions are my questions. And I'm growing up in the faith with you. I don't remember experiencing uncertainty, doubts, and questions as a threat to Christian faith. What a gift, right? Um, We also ate family dinner together every night, pretty much. I loved getting home from volleyball practice on a fall evening and walking up the front um, walkway, and I could smell beef stew or chicken noodle soup, which were on regular rotation during the colder months. Um, And the table was really a central part of our home. Um, And it wasn't until my 30s that, um, and we were settling in to work here, that I realized just how formative time around the meal table had been for me, for my whole upbringing. So formative that I would now say I'm a Christian in large part because my family ate meals together. I caught something over those many meals. God is interested in nourishing us in every sense. With food, with relationships, with companionship in our doubts and our questions. And what I caught... Uh, was in line with what was taught or said. I'm learning alongside you. It's okay to have questions. Um, This, as is probably (laughs) clear to you, uh, has not only been key to me continuing to follow Jesus, but it's shaped me for the work that we do here at Labrie. So that is one example of a caught and taught kind of dynamic in my own life. Um, Another one I won't go into at length just for time, but one that, and to be honest, because I just, I haven't, I haven't really, I need to write to think, and I haven't written through this. (laughs) But one area of dissonance in the caught and taught dynamic for me had to do with being female and figuring out what it meant to be a Christian woman. Um, There were lots of conflicting messages between home and church and what I heard and then what I saw. 
Um, and so that that's one area that um, I made a significant departure from the church of my upbringing as I got older. Um, but can anyway, I can come back to that in discussion if you'd like to talk about that more. Um, so I want to ask you to be reflecting for yourself on what was taught and what was caught. <clears throat> now for two of Svoboda's practices that I think kind of pair with this caught or taught um, idea. One thing he recommends if you're trying to follow Jesus through doubt and deconstruction is learn to tend. Learn to tend. This is a call for slowness and attention in a busy and distracted culture. And it's a call to grow something, to tend your own story, to tend your questions, your doubts, your healing process, like one would tend a garden. There are taut weeds that need pulling up, and there are caught weeds that need pulling up. So taking the time to identify them and work them out of the ground of your soul, (laughs) this takes time. And it takes um, a lot of reflection. Swoboda writes, Reflective poverty reframes our search for truth today. What took years of deep, arduous thought and prayer in the past is replaced with the easy, the succinct, the tweetable, a lifetime of painstaking effort at reflection, risk, and error is replaced by a TED Talk. And the modern expert is the one who read an article about something once. Reflective poverty. You've all read our media and technology policy, and you know that we don't give out the Wi-Fi password, and we ask you to generally take a break from your phone and your constant connection while at Labrie for the sake of connection and reflection. Connection with yourself and with others and with God. Connection and reflection. And this is why, because we all suffer today from reflective poverty. And increasingly, unless I'm really clueless, um, we find that people are really grateful for this technology and information fast while at Labrie. But even at Labrie, reflection is not guaranteed. It's hard to let people and to let the books we read and to let the lectures that we listen to and to let our own stories be a mirror onto our lives. Reflection and looking at the reflection before us is hard. 
Um, tending also uh, means slowing down and noticing. It means also reading differently. Swoboda quotes author Nicholas Carr, who wrote um, a book called The Shallows, you may have come across, from his Atlantic article, Is Google Making Us Stupid? Um, And Carr says this. I liked this imagery quite a bit. Immersing myself in a book or a lengthy article used to be easy. My mind would get caught up in the narrative or the turns of the argument, and I'd spend hours strolling through long stretches of prose. Once, I was a scuba diver in the sea of words. Now, I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. (laughs) (laughs) So, even at Labrie... Uh, reading less might be reading more. In Proverbs 25, we read, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. It may well be that we must condition all sorts of atrophied muscles for the glorious task of searching out a matter. Swoboda also notes, sometimes God hides from us. He's seeking the kind of person whose patient persistence can actually handle the truth. God won't ruin us with the truth if we don't have the character to handle it. God does not always hide from us. Sometimes he hides for us. This does not mean that God is playing a malicious game of hide-and-seek with us. Think of how uh, weary kids get when they can't find their playmate (laughs) for an extended period of time. But um, I think this does mean we should be skeptical of our own timelines for growth, for healing, for owning my own faith. Even that verb, owning, (laughs) is potentially problematic. This is not an Amazon buy now click kind of thing. My mom told me that I came home from my first day of kindergarten totally miffed that they hadn't taught me to read yet. (laughs) And I see that same impatience and unrealistic expectation of the time that learning and growth takes surface in me still. Even in the last few weeks with a new season of life, both kids are at school now, and I can't seem to sit down and read a book. (laughs) I need to relearn this skill. I have become very adept at doing lots of things at the same time, but not sitting and giving my attention to something. Um, 
I believe this learn to tend advice is a piece of wisdom that can offer comfort in the midst of deconstruction. It also asks us to do our part to slow down and attend and tend. We cannot force God's hand, but maybe we can learn to slow our own hands, our own eyes, our own bodies. The second practice of Swabotas that I want to mention now is um, <clears throat> the practice um, of being wrong. Practicing being wrong. <laughs> Some of you grew up in Christian homes that were so heavy on being wrong and your wrongness. Um, this is often true of traditions that are really heavy on total depravity of humans to the neglect of the created goodness of humans that you might actually need the flip side of this. So you really need to practice being right about some things. Um, but for others, especially those who <clears throat> may identify denominationally before identifying simply as a follower of Jesus, um, who picked up the message, who caught the message that their church or their denomination was really the right kind of Christian, and also those who grew up in highly moralistic contexts might really need to practice being wrong. Um, we need to learn the joy and the freedom that it is to not have to always prove that we're always right. <clears throat> Practicing being wrong is about repentance, turning back to God through a changed mind and actions. Swoboda writes that in Christian theology, repentance means facing reality head on. Repentance is difficult to ignore throughout the Bible. The first word out of John the Baptist's mouth, repent. The first word of Jesus' first sermon, repent. Repentance is critical to Christian life. The joy of being a Christian is that Jesus actually invites us to explore our wrongness. Look at our sin. Come to terms. Not look the other way. He says, repentance can be painful and life-shattering. There's no mincing words. But that shattering is counted as good and necessary for Christians. And this applies not only to the need to change actions, but to change ideas. I like what C.S. Lewis writes in A Grief Observed. I need Christ not something that resembles him. A really good photograph might become, in the end, a snare, a horror, and an obstacle. Images of the holy easily become holy images, sacrosanct. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. 
Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. For some, the story of following Jesus will involve following him away from a certain denominational identity so that we can come to know Jesus, not just know a lot about Jesus. And I I think it merits saying that it's precisely the failure to practice being wrong, the failure to repent, that is driving so many away from the Christian church. The church is in the hot seat right now for good reason. The inability to admit wrongs, whether they be wrong ideas or wrong and sinful actions, has created a crisis of integrity. I just read an article last night by Russell Moore called The Integrity and the Future of the Church. And he says this, When the next generation is told that the Orthodox Christian belief in a God of both justice and justification is Marxist, or that seeing morality as a matter of both personal and social responsibility is critical race theory, they can tell that even the labelers do not believe what they're saying. When the next generation sees sexual abuse covered up and those who call it out silenced or shamed, they see a use of power quite different from that of a good shepherd. When they see evangelicalism as a political interest group, they can easily see where the ground of unity actually is. And what they are really asking is about integrity, about whether all of this holds together. What they ask is not, can I believe what you are saying, but do you believe what you are saying? I know. (laughs) So I invite you to reflect and keep reflecting because that's tending on what you've both been taught and what you've caught in your upbringing. And I invite you to practice being wrong when you've been wrong. Following Jesus on purpose is the path to integrity, to an integrated life. Okay, the second um, piece of um, encouragement that I want to share from my own life um, is the gift and importance of learning from the wider Christian tradition. Often people come to Labrie because they're on the fence with Christianity, with God, with the Bible, with the church, and sometimes the most important first question to ask is, which Christianity, which God, which Bible, or what about the Bible, or what about the church? 
One of the most important factors for me in continuing to follow Jesus has been keeping myself closely tethered to people of deep faith, both peers and mentors, um, people who took and take my questions seriously and help me sort through which Christianity, which God, what Bible are you talking about here, Sarah? Which church are you on the fence with? Um, increasing my familiarity with and my understanding of Christian traditions that were not what I grew up with. Um, For example, learning about the liturgical calendar, learning the practice of Lectio Divina, as well as learning more about theological differences between denominational traditions. Um, For example, different views around communion um, or baptism has helped me better appreciate the roots of what I grew up with, um, even as I have moved and resonate more deeply with different understandings and practices now um, as an adult. So it hasn't been in pulling further away from Christianity, from church, from the Bible, from God, that I've found answers. It's been pressing further in um, and and realizing that the Christianity or the God or the Bible or the church that I'm on the fence with is actually a very distorted or a very partial understanding of God. I don't need less of the Bible. I actually need the whole Bible to navigate the questions and the doubts that I have. So alongside this um, embrace and pursuit and openness to the wider Christian tradition, the whole Christian tradition, I should say, um, are two of Svoboda's practices. One, the first one he um, offers is going to church. And I want to just put in my own caveat and say, I do believe there are times when taking a break from church might be completely appropriate and might be the best thing that one can do to keep following Jesus. Um, I also believe that there are seasons, and a term at Labrie, for instance, is one of these, when one of the best things that we can do for our own growth and faith is to visit many different types of churches. Um, The way that Christians have related to the church has gone through different iterations through church history. The way that I have related to church has gone through changes and transformations over the years. Svoboda contrasts the reformers' critique of uh, Roman Roman Catholic sacerdotalism, which means the idea that one is saved, through church going and connection to the institutional church, he contrasts that with the opposite problem in Western Christianity today. He says, we have replaced the bad idea that God was found only in church with another bad idea that God can be found everywhere but church. (laughs) But why 
go to church. I like that Swoboda points us to the creeds, theological statements from the first few centuries of church history articulating Christian belief. He points out there's two types. There are I creeds. The Apostles' Creed is an I creed. I believe in God the Father. And this creed served as a confessional statement for new Christians in conversion. The Nicene Creed is a second kind of creed, a we creed, that represents the beliefs of the whole church for all Christians everywhere. I believe and we believe creeds. Swoboda notes, creeds offer theological boundaries around true and untrue Christian beliefs. But the creeds weren't simply about what to believe, they were also about how to believe. On the one hand, we're called to believe in Jesus personally, following him, repenting, and giving our lives in fidelity to Christ. But this is only half the story. We're simultaneously invited to believe alongside the rest of the church in history, in eternity, and on earth. To be a Christian is to believe personally and corporately with the rest of the church. I want to, I was again quite struck and struck with and moved by this observation that he gives. Svoboda writes, this can't be stressed enough. There's no room for do-it-yourself Christianity. The entire palette of Christian discipleship to, to Jesus requires others. The unconverted cannot believe alone. The gospel must be preached and heard. We don't call ourselves. God initiates that call. Self-baptism isn't an option. We need someone to bring us up from the watery grave. Even Christ required his cousin to baptize him. The disciples didn't wash their own feet. Jesus did it for them. Communion is served, not individually unwrapped. Except for in a pandemic. Can't wait for that to end. (laughs) Time and again, Jesus borrowed people's things. Cups of water, boats, donkeys to ride into town with. He was even buried in a borrowed grave. And Jesus had the angels move the rock off the empty grave. He didn't lift a finger until we can be helped, loved and served. Faith will never be understood or received. The I is nothing without the we. Um, Those of you who are at morning prayer and heard the story of the resurrection of Lazarus this morning too might recall how communal of an effort that was too. So we need to return to this initial foreground background picture 
It's not enough and it's not accurate to paint a picture of what it means to follow Jesus on purpose that is merely me and Jesus. So who's in the foreground with you? Um, And finally, the last um, thing I want to talk about, the other practice of Swoboda's that I want to consider together is what he calls embracing the whole kingdom. He um, describes our social and political landscape in the U.S. right now. Um, Some of you might know the phrase, the big sort, uh, referring to a book that um, talked about the the physical migration of people in our country to... uh, to blue or red states according to where they felt they politically aligned. And so where we used to be able to look at a map of our country and see purple, a lot of blue and red mixed together, increasingly it's very it's very polarized. All of the blue is together, all of the red is together. The kingdoms of this world are divided. And this leaves us with a divided vision of God's kingdom, too. Um, He sums up um, two seemingly competing views of what God's kingdom is in the contemporary church, characterized by questions like this. Do we go to progressive churches that stand up for immigrant children at the border? Or do we go to conservative churches that stand up for the unborn? Do we go to conservative churches that evangelize with the gospel? Or do we go to progressive churches that seem to be living the gospel? Do we go to conservative churches that hold up a high view of sexual holiness? Or do we go to progressive churches that make space for sexual minorities? Do we go to conservative churches that tackle the evils of personal sin? Or do we go to progressive churches that fight against systemic evil and injustice? Do we go to conservative churches that emphasize human economy? Or progressive churches that emphasize climate and ecology? The theological, um, this theological and emotional disconnect has been eloquently described by Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. I am a man torn in two, and the gospel I inherited is divided. And yet, the New Testament vision of God's kingdom is God's kingdom, not ours. Jesus is not a conservative or a progressive. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the crucified and resurrected king of all creation. And following Jesus means being, um, as my handsome husband put it in a previous lecture, Following Jesus means being politically homeless. 
Swoboda notes that our divided vision of God's kingdom didn't just come about, nor is it the first time God's people have been divided. Um, I was glad he pointed me to 1 Kings 12. After the death of Solomon, Rehoboam ascends to power, and his rejection of the wisdom of the elders of Israel in favor of the advice of his peers regarding um, how severe the workload of the people should be, he opts for work harder, leads to a divided kingdom. And Swoboda notes that this division of the kingdom stemmed from a breakdown in intergenerational relationships. Swoboda writes, the fractured vision of God's kingdom cannot be healed apart from a healing of our intergenerational, interracial, and interpersonal relationships. And he calls for a reconsideration of what it means to honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. As I mentioned at the beginning, throughout my preparation for this lecture, I've been thinking about um, the closing words of the Old Testament, sort of this hinge between the Old and the New Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is quite a different image than that of my title question, an image of the child riding the parent's coattails. Rather, hearts turned toward one another parent to child, child to parent. I'd like to end with this suggestion. Following Jesus on purpose might well mean leaving the siloed encampment of our red or blue partial kingdom in favor of God's whole kingdom Indeed, the kingdom of God was never meant to be and never will be established along political lines. But hearts turned toward one another. This he can work with. Um, I want to end with a prayer for families from the Book of Common Prayer that um, draws on Malachi's language. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, you set the solitary in families. We commend to your continual care the homes in which your people dwell. Put far from them every root of bitterness, the desire of vainglory, and the pride of life. Fill them with faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, and true godliness. Knit together in constant affection 
those who in holy matrimony have been made one flesh. Turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents. And so enkindle fervent charity among us all that we may evermore be joined to one another with bonds of loving kindness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, like I said, I think I left many rocks unturned. Um, And I'm happy to talk together about um, what this brought to mind or questions that you find coming up for you as you think about this or things you want to challenge or add to. Um, The floor is open for conversation and discussion until my voice gets out. I get like too allergy-ish and snuffling. Sorry. question of forgiveness and um, what are the are there prerequisites for forgiving someone Um, yeah 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 Mm. and I find that um, especially where there's deep hurt there's a an unfolding quality to the forgiving (laughs) there's maybe initial realizations of the the debt owed or the trespass that was made and um, then often as we grow we realize different implications uh, for that and that kind of keeps bringing that forgiveness to the surface to keep living into the forgiveness Sometimes Please, yeah. those who fit most that category, unfortunately, are the ones who are the most, who are the most right. Mm-hmm. And so for them, it would be <laughs> faithless to, to apologize. There's yeah. Driving forward, given the polarization of things. Yeah. <clears throat> I think sometimes we get too distracted looking at these and upset about them, and we forget to look at flowers, too. Mm-hmm. 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 I think that the, the caught versus taught is a really <laughs> helpful um, categorization of our, our memories and our, the things that were, um, uh, were given to us as children. Because even like, expanding it from the parent perspective, there's so many adults in your life as a child that are influential 
um, that, um, and I think I was talking to a clinician a couple months ago who explained kind of, and I could not do it as eloquently as she did, but um, the way that our brains are developed as children is that they, we don't have the full context of the world to receive messages that are being sent. Um, so a parent may seemingly fully explain something or in a way that they, with their um, adult mind, feel like they have fully explained something. But a child not having the full context of the world developing really will um, sometimes receive something that wasn't meant to be sent. And... Um, mm-hmm. And that's another um, some other verbiage that I found that is helpful is like is saying um, to people, to parents, through reconciliation and things like that, this is what I receive. Mm-hmm. What did you mean to send? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And kind of adding <coughs> some some language to that space, even in a form where you need that forgiveness, <coughs> acknowledging to parents or other adults or whoever it is in your life who's formative in these ways, um, acknowledging the fact that maybe their intention is not to send something, um, and giving them the opportunity to share what they intended to send, but also um, being truthful about what it was as a child that you received, that you caught from that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Marty. Just thinking of that, um, if it's Christian parents who can never apologize to their children, then it's an amazing contradiction uh, of the basics of the gospel, of the of the words that uh, if a Christian parent is mm-hmm. a Christian parent is teaching their children that this is all about grace, and I need forgiveness just as much as you do. I'm falling. I'm a sinner. I need Jesus Christ. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the would be one of the hardest um, contradictions for a child mm-hmm. to to cope with when the words of the gospel yeah. are all about all of our need for forgiveness, and yet a parent not willing mm-hmm. to ask forgiveness of their child. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. I mean, I was so conscious, particularly with one child who knew how to push all my buttons, and and. Um, make me say and do all sorts of things that I, it wasn't Ben. Just to clear that, but that there was no doubt in my mind over and over again that I needed to apologize to the child mm-hmm. because I mm-hmm. broke mm-hmm. all my rules of discipline. <laughs> you know, part of my rules of discipline was not, you don't yell, you don't yell, scream, or break your hairbrush on your child. Um, anyway, yep. that's it. Yep. Okay. So, that only happened once. <laughs> 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 I mean, it, all my rules. <laughs> so, yeah. asking forgive. I mean, I, there were periods yeah. of my life when I think every night when I put this child to bed, I would say, forgive me. <laughs> I, I, I'm really sorry. One so day he said, "Yeah." He said to me, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." He said to me, "What? 
Well, I do forgive you, but when are you going to change? <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. But um. Yeah. It was interesting because yeah. we had a we had a, 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 a cousin of mine who lived with us for a while. We were studying when we were in England. Who was who was going to a college in England and used to come and stay with us. He was not a Christian. He was not from a Christian home. Not a Christian. And he used to watch us with our children. And one day, he said to me. Oh, I've observed that Dick is much more patient with the children than you are. I just thought, oh Lord, <laughs> you know, I'm praying for this guy to become a Christian, and he's such a bad mother. Um, and I just had to admit, you're right. He is much more patient with children than I am. Yeah. Then he said, but you apologize to them. I've never had. An adult, my, no parent, neither parent or any adult has ever apologized to me. Mm-hmm. And it turned out it was, it was really a key thing in him becoming a Christian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. was just a sign of talk about God's grace and mm-hmm. mercy. Mm-hmm. My mm-hmm. failure, yeah, my all my bad yeah. mothering. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you, Marty. Ben, yeah. It's hard, it's hard on the here. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to comment directly on him. This is something I was going to say anyway. Before yeah. okay. It's just the, um, I think that I, my sense is that a lot of parents get very uh, uptight about this idea that they're modeling something for their mm. kids, um, which is well motivated, I think, for many people because that's what hoping your kids will catch something means. You know, mm-hmm. like it's not just that mm-hmm. you say things over and over again and live differently. It's that they are catching the way you live. Mm-hmm. Your model, you're showing them a picture of what it is to, to believe this and what it is to follow Jesus. Um, but I, 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 my sense is that for a lot of people, the, the misunderstanding comes with what modeling is about showing them the picture of what, a, what righteousness looks like all the time. Right. Um, and lo and behold, you can't do that, um, but you still feel the pressure that you're supposed to do that with the fear that somehow if, unless my kids see a perfect modeling of what the Christian life looks like, they, they will, their faith will plummet. Uh-huh. They'll, they'll lose faith if this is, you know, and it's <coughs> completely the opposite. It's just the case, like it's actually the ability to acknowledge that, you, that you're not righteous mm-hmm. in very specific ways. That is what Christian modeling should be. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're trying to show your, your kids that they need to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. They need mm-hmm. to be responsive to the damage they cause in the world. <laughs> um, and yeah, yeah and, and apologize and repent. And, yeah. uh, the idea of modeling has to include all of the Christian life. It's not modeling as in I need to be as perfect as Jesus in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's just not going to happen. Modeling mm-hmm. is has to yeah. be. Acknowledging wrongness. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I found myself thinking in the um, practicing being wrong (laughs) suggestion um, that it's, you know, and it's not just in our, um, in, 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 in admitting we're wrong or, you know, making space for someone else to admit it, but it's like in our attitude toward being wrong too like is that always this heavy shameful thing you know and and I found myself asking like what would it be like if it was like every time there was a 
you know, I'm sorry and I, I forgive you. Then it was like, hooray! <laughs> what is, like, what, is there something we could do that would like create a, a joyfulness around confession, repentance, forgiveness, you know, so that, uh, yeah, it, it's not like this high trepidation kind of thing. Um, which I definitely remember feeling like, mm. <laughs> and still, like you got to really work yourself up to, I was wrong, or I'm really sorry, or whatever. But like, for somehow, for that to become just more normal <laughs> and more expected, and mm. yeah. I had an interesting experience where the first time I was conscious of lying, I told my dad immediately after I did. First time you were conscious of what? Lying. Lying. Okay. Um, I told him immediately, and I think I put him in a very tricky parenting spot because he could punish the lie or perform the truth. So he told me specifically, I am not punishing you because you told me the truth. Mm-hmm. And I've been a very honest person. I don't know how much that had to do with it, but um, that, I don't know, it's that, that space to make room for, there is room for the truth. Yeah. Um, Despite there being, mm-hmm. 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 yeah, Ben. Can I just hear you say this? There should be like a there should be a habit of celebration mm-hmm. after asking for forgiveness or something because it's actually yeah. reminds me of something that, that uh, your handsome husband said years ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't remember. <laughs> Something had been done wrong, and you know, one of your kids was being told that they had to apologize for it, and they were saying, "No, no, I don't want to be in trouble." Mm-hmm. And, and your, your mm-hmm. response was like, "You are in trouble. This is how you get out of trouble." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, forgiveness is how you get out of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I like, oh, yeah. And so, right. what if, yeah, yeah. If, we could, if we could like turn the have the humility to say I'm wrong. I think maybe yeah. some of that has to do with like, even after we've are, are we've been forgiven of the guilt of whatever it is, we still have the shame. Yeah, yeah. the shame yeah. that lingers. We still mm-hmm. feel like a, like an idiot even mm-hmm. after we know mm-hmm. we've been forgiven, and so that's part of the yeah. the gloom. Yeah, that, uh, that's stuck with me. Mm-hmm. But what you're experiencing right now, that is trouble. <laughs> you get out of trouble by yeah. asking Mm-hmm. 
TS, I, I was reading his Mark commentary, he prefaced it to, to my father, who has been preaching the gospel for 70 years. And I see that over and over and over again. Um, so, my, I thought that I would like to do a study on this, but then I thought there must be some overwork seminary student who's addressed this. Is there like a published study on the different, on the theological, sociological, etc., differences between first and second generation Christians? Mm-hmm. That, that dynamic has shaped my life as has meant, I feel like somebody has had to talk about this. I think that's really critical to understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's both look for that. <laughs> um, yeah, I I don't know, but I would love to know. I'm I would think there must be um, stuff on that. I uh, you all know we met Joshua's aunt and uncle in Boston a couple weeks ago, um, who I met for the first time, <clears throat> and. I was really struck in my conversation with Joshua's aunt about, you know, she was asking about family and sharing about family. And, and you know, she she was just sort of celebrating and marveling in the, the multi-generational faith heritage in Joshua's family, which is not the story on my side of the family. Like, it was dramatic conversion. My, my, my dad's, I shared, my mom's, she grew up in a, kind of a nominal Catholic, Polish Catholic home, um, you know, kind of did all the right things, First Communion, Catechism, um, but then it wasn't until a boyfriend when she was 20 or something told her about having a personal relationship with Jesus that she was like, why didn't anybody ever tell me? <laughs> and it was like one of those just light bulb moments for her. So like it was a very non-dramatic <laughs> conversion for her, just kind of an easy like, oh, well, I'll, now it all makes sense. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, I don't have these sort of generations of faith on my side. And um, anyway, this is just a anecdotal response, but it, it got me thinking about, um, yeah, just some of the differences even in our family cultures that have been shaped by that. Um, yeah, go ahead. Uh, Keep Aaron. Just, um, yeah. Add one observation. The reason um, is it handing off. It's like a football handoff. That's a first critical handoff. Hmm. And if you fumble it, then it can be, you know, hmm. tragic. Um, something that has helped me personally, I, I was talking with Taylor about the idea of weakness. Um, I, I was going back over Jack Packer's work last year when he died, and um, his book on Second Corinthians about how we need to em- embrace weakness. Mm-hmm. And the, the the essence of the pain and weakness is from beginning to the end, the sense of inadequacy. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a parent, but I have many siblings, um, you know, friends of but I realize that nothing drives home the sense of an inadequacy like being a parent. When I think about the sympathetic language about the uh, 
um, the faith as a heritage, like guard the deposit, guard the treasure, mm-hmm. hand it down. I realize what a, mm-hmm. um, what a difficult task that must be as a parent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason why I, I love Marty's talks on intergenerationality, um, mm-hmm. like when I've been around young parents, you know, very recently, even just um, two months ago, I was at the dinner table and got to share my testimony as part of my friend trying to tell his three-year-old son how to know Jesus. And I just see, this is, if I was in this position, this was really hard. <laughs> so, um, when, I, when I've seen these young kids, now that I'm the age where I'm getting to know my parents as human beings, especially my father, who's played a large role in my life, um, I've, I've now been able, without him saying anything, from my heart, I've been able to forgive him mm-hmm. because I realized that um, I was expecting him to be God to me. He was not meant to be breaking of the second commandment. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think mm-hmm. we can talk about the parents, but I think at least those of us who are struggling with this talk and clock thing, um, we have to remember. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I've been thinking about, and yeah, I'm going to think out loud because I, I couldn't write it out yet, is, you know, the Old Testament ends with this call for hearts of that Elijah will turn the hearts of the fathers to children and hearts of the children to fathers. And <clears throat> that John the Baptist picks up on that language. And, and then there's also, um, like, he, he also indicts people for, you know, saying, like, we're Abraham's children, you know? <laughs> like, and so there's, yeah, it's like, there's something in the way that we're left at the end of the Old Testament to, to be turned turn toward one another. And I, I want to say it's something of what you just described, like this compassionate turn towards one another that can see uh, see one another as humans and not God, <laughs> to honor um, parents um, or for children to honor parents and for parents to bless children um but to not see them you know or that that somehow in loving one another in that way it actually helps um helps us become less um disillusion or what's the word so it like breaks our illusions that um our salvation is in our heritage somehow like mm-hmm. god is our salvation mm-hmm. and like we nobody can just claim like I'm Abraham's child. <laughs> and, um, God can make children for himself from rocks, right? So, um, yeah. Go ahead, Marty. I feel like that's my story because mm-hmm. I was the first Christian in my family. So I was not, I was, my story is so different from mm-hmm. what you described as mm-hmm. yours. So as a 16-year-old, I was the first one to become a Christian. Yeah. And... Um, one by one, my siblings came, became believers, and my parents were the last ones to become believers. And but 
when I first became a Christian, it was such a radical change for me as a 16-year-old um, that uh, I alienated my parents because <laughs> they were incredibly good people, mm-hmm. a good marriage, good moral people. They had actually started going to church but really weren't believers. But um, just my heavy-duty evangelism of them, which which took a long time to, I mean, it took quite a while for me to realize this is not the root. Mm. I have to actually be a better child, you know, <laughs> for them. But um, I, I, I love, I love that the end of Malachi and you talking about that mm. in the hearts, mm-hmm. the fathers, the children, because mm-hmm. I saw that happen mm. over many, many years, and mm-hmm. and actually when they would come to visit us in London, and. Um, be part of the church that met in our that was the Labrie House but also a church and Dick was preaching and they mm. they really they loved the community there that was a very big part in them because mm-hmm. it was such a cross cultural cross class cross racial cross ethnic mm. community mm-hmm. which they they were really moved by and they loved Dick's preaching and mm-hmm. God used that in their lives but they were very much um, I don't think either of them could have could have pointed to a, a conversion date or mm. something like that, but mm-hmm. it was very gradual. Mm-hmm. But um, but it was wonderful. The, you know, the hearts of me and my siblings mm-hmm. and my parents, mm-hmm. they, were, they were good parents. And in fact, I actually often worried because I was raised in a really good non-Christian home. And I... And I saw so many horrible Christian homes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we had so many students from horrible Christian homes that it made me terrified to raise children in a Christian home. Mm-hmm. How are you going to do this mm-hmm. and have them and have it not be a horrible experience mm-hmm. for them? Mm-hmm. It was anyway. Um, yeah. In God's mercy, they, yeah. you know, in mm-hmm. in their older years, um, mm-hmm. I believe really came to grant. I no doubts about my dad and. I'm pretty sure about my mom that, that they came to embrace the, the faith mm. of their children. <laughs> Another little story that Swoboda tells in the <clears throat> tending um, section is on. You know, tending is slowing down, noticing, paying attention. He um, says in the the rabbinic tradition has long held that there were probably many people who passed the burning bush. Moses was just the first one who stopped <laughs> and looked and noticed, which I was like, oh, I, I love the rabbis. Um, um, but one of the things that he he said in from his own life, he's noticed is his son um, will be like, Dad, take your shoes off. Dad, take your shoes off. And, and he finally was like, why? Why do you want me to take your shoes? My shoes off. He's like, because when your shoes are off, you have nowhere else to go. And oh. I was like, oh. like take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. You've got nowhere else to go. And um, it just made it, it, it made me aware of how rarely I sit down in the day. And so I've started just trying to pay attention, like. 
And it's amazing. Like, as soon as I sit down, both kids are like, whoa. You know, from, it's like they have a radar. Like, a parent has sat down. And, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but it, anyway, it was, um, it was a compelling story because, like, yeah, how I'm I'm here, but I my shoes are on. <laughs> I'm, on the, I'm standing. I'm running around from one thing to the next, and um, sit down. <laughs> Take your shoes off. Mm-hmm. Similarly, mm-hmm. one of my sons used to um, when if he was trying to talk to me, he would actually grab my face <laughs> and turn it toward him. <laughs> Because he knew, yeah, I was distracted with other things. I was only half listening. So he literally would put his mm-hmm. hands on my face, mm-hmm. turn it right. Mm-hmm. That was a game of very strong message. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Any other thoughts or questions you want to share or raise? Yeah, Christina. Good. Yeah, I was thinking mm-hmm. that too. Like this, uh, the <laughs> longer you live, and the more sort of seasons of life you walk through, and um, yeah, churches you have influencing you. I think these things translate. Well, thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.